Hi, welcome to the Transforming Spaces podcast by Gendered Intelligence. My name's Annie and my pronouns are she or they. And I'm Frankie and my pronouns are he, him. In this podcast, we'll be running through some of the talks delivered at the Transforming Spaces conference in 2018. Gendered Intelligence is a charity that works to increase understandings of gender diversity and help improve the lives of all trans people. Our vision is of a world where people are no longer constrained by narrow perceptions and expectations of gender, and where diverse gender expressions are visible and valued. If you're interested in supporting Gendered Intelligence or to find out more about our youth work, volunteer scheme, educational and professional services, please visit genderedintelligence.co.uk or follow us on our Twitter at genderintel. This episode is about creating safer spaces for young people. We'll be hearing from some of our youth workers here at Gender Intelligence and some reflections from our young people on how our youth camps are run and the methodology behind creating safer youth spaces. Our speakers in this episode are Finn Gregg, who is the Youth Service Lead at Gender Intelligence. Jake Kelly, Camp Lead, Youth Work Assistant and Residential Project Lead at Gendered Intelligence. Seba Chowdhury, who's a trans and people of colour youth worker and mentor with Gendered Intelligence. Tobias Draper, Anthropology Student and LGBT Officer at LSE. And this panel is hosted by Blue Weir. Um, we've been trying to get more explicit with our use of what we mean by discrimination or like let's be nice to people. We actually use um, language like uh, racism, um, homophobia, sexism, ableism, etc. in our spaces, which I think creates a safer uh, attitude. Um, and that's going to kind of reflect also on, on mental health issues. So the more young people that we get coming to our spaces, uh, probably obviously, uh, you're going to see more different needs. Um, but we have seen a massive rise in young people arriving at group with mental health diagnoses, so official diagnoses, or kind of self-awareness or self-identified mental health concerns and issues. And I think this is really, really uh, prevalent in the trans community, the more that we see this onslaught um, of kind of negative uh, press, etc. So I think we need to be thinking as a team as well, when we're thinking about young people with vulnerabilities in other areas, how can we, how can we make those uh, spaces safer? So for us, thinking about safer spaces is to do with policy, it's to do with procedure and it's to do with practice. Um, this for me is all underpinned by how we look at our values and our ethics and our methodology. Um, so we really have kind of made a concerted effort in the last couple of years to think about what is our policy to making safer spaces for young trans people? What's our procedure? So how do we kind of go and do that? And where's our practice base? So when we're thinking about youth work practice or group work practice. For me, anti-oppressive practice is at the root of that and the key of that. Um, when we're thinking about anti-oppressive practice in general, we can kind of think proactively about creating uh, a safer space. Um, and I think specifically in a trans youth work setting, um, when you think about currently what's going on wider in the wider society, which we're discussing over these two days, with the kind of heated discourse for trans communities, and especially for young trans people within that, so under 25, under 18, uh, young people are identifying as trans and non-binary. I think we're obviously at a very dangerous and divisive time, um, and so our spaces are, are really key, and that those spaces are coming from an anti-oppressive practice uh, starting point is really, really key. Um, so yeah, I think um, one of my other kind of concerns around safety for young people isn't just about what happens in the space, but what those young people leave with, uh, with regards to resilience and tools and strategies to be able to deal with the rest of their lives, 
where I sometimes feel sad that I can't be <laughs> uh, walking with them because I know of their stories and the things that happen to them. So we focus on kind of what resilience tools and what kind of actual knowledge and information can we share here that means that you can leave and have a strategy and have a friend that you can message or have a kind of remembering of this, of this group setting where you feel safe to be safe as much as you can be outside. Um, so for us, it's all about well-being, the resilience of the young people, a uh, sense of pride in who they are, so that those kind of moments outside don't impact them as much, and uh, empowerment uh, within that. So I'd like to uh, introduce some of our young people who are going to uh, officially facilitate the session, um, and then we'll hear from Sabra and Jake, who are going to speak more kind of tangibly about some of the stuff I've been chatting on about, but how we do that in practice. Um, so um, Blue and Toby who are going to introduce Jake and Sabra. Thanks very much. I'm Blue and you see him pronouns. Um, our first speaker is Jake Kelly. Jake started working for GI as a volunteer. He has been working on youth camps since 2011 and has since been taking more and more responsibility, which has led to his current full time role as a which is a residential lead and assistant to youth service. Um, having attended four GI camps, I've always marveled at the huge processes behind keeping such a large space safe. I've also been, to a certain extent, blissfully ignorant of all of the <laughs> behind the scenes work. Um, so do tell me, <laughs> how do you implement safety in these spaces? Thanks, um, So yes, yeah, so I'm going to talk about how we try and um, do that. So the things that we put in place to aim to create that those camps of safe space. Um, sorry, I've got a bit of a cough that might happen. Um, so GI camps have been running since 2010. Finn will never let me forget that I wasn't there at the first one. Um, but this year uh, we actually managed to do our 10th and 11th camps. So we upped our numbers a couple of years ago to doing two camps every summer. Um, so as I mentioned um, a few minutes ago, this camp we did, uh, this year we did an unders camp. So for 11 to 17 year olds, and we took the exact number was 32 of those away for a long weekend with a team of all trans and non-binary identified staff and then we did super camp which uh, the exact number was 152 young trans people aged 18 to 25 um, and then a much bigger team of uh, all trans and non-binary identified youth workers and kitchen team and meds team and everything else um, and we had trans and non-binary visitors come along as well. So uh, the photo up there is one of the photos from Supercamp. It doesn't show everyone because we couldn't all fit in one frame, which is a shame. So there are a lot of things that we do before we even get to the campsite. Um, so one of the key things that we do is that before we go, we call everybody who's going on that camp. We didn't do that in the case of Supercamp. I'll come to that and what we did do uh, in a second. So before we go, uh, a good couple of months before, we call every single young person who's signed up and has booked a space to come on camp. And the reason for that is to have a chat with them one-to-one -one and give them an opportunity to talk about their questions, their concerns, their nerves about it, but also anything specifically around their mental health or physical health access needs. So we might have conversations around um, their concerns around food and what the meals are going to be like, have really detailed conversations with young people every year about exactly what food we'll be serving at camp and if there's particular safe foods that they need us to buy, we can get those on the shopping list. 
um, as well as having conversations around physical accessibility or what kind of strategies we have in place on camp if they're struggling or if they decide that actually after a day they want to go home and that that's okay. And what we find is that every year we have young people who attend who hate camping, haven't been on a camp in five years because they went with their primary school and it was awful and they went with scouts and they hated it. And they come on camp and they go, I want to be able to go home if I want. We go, yeah, that's fine. If you decide you want to go home, we will talk to you and we'll try and support you today. If you want to go, we'll let you leave. And on the whole, those young people then stay the whole of the weekend and go, I love camping now. <laughs> Not always, there are some young people who do leave and what we know is that they leave for the right reasons and that the journey they've come on is huge for them and we support them to get what they need out of that process. In terms of Supercamp, I didn't call 180 young people, which is our original booking numbers, uh, but what we did is we sent out a series of emails. So over the space of several months, uh, we sent sort of fortnightly emails to the young people, updating them about stuff that was happening, updating them about new workshop leaders we had signed on, but also there was a specific email that went out to young people who've put on their booking form physical access needs or mental health access needs. And there's a specific email that got sent out to those young people that just detailed the kind of provisions and strategies that were in place that would be able to support them and invited them to email back or to call or text if they kind of wanted to know more or they wanted a specific conversation. Um, there was then from that a list of about 15 to 20 young people who I did call or I emailed or was kind of more individual contact with because of the nature of the access needs or the complexities or they expressed like an extreme anxiety about camp. Um, not all of those young people came in the end, some of them made a choice that actually it was too soon for them and that's okay and what's important to us is that we helped go through that process with them and that we talked to them about what the reality of camp would be like because the worst case scenario is we tell them, yeah, it'll be fine, it'll be great, you'll be totally fine and then they come and go, this is not fine, this is, this is a disaster. Um, so one of the other things we do, again, we didn't do it for Supercamp because the emails took that place, but standardly, we do a prep day. So all of the young people who have signed up to come on camp come to London and we meet for a day. Uh, their parents and carers are invited to come to the first bit so they can ask us all the parenting questions. Um, and then we spend the day playing icebreakers, chatting. We spend quite a long bit of time on that day sitting down and doing, I think Jay mentioned this morning that we do working agreements in GI spaces. So we sit down and do some really careful thought processes around a specific camp working agreement. And often that involves thinking about sharing tent spaces or sharing eating spaces or sharing these communal spaces because we very much create our own community when we get to that campsite. Um, so we spend that day, one of the other things they do on that day is they decide who they want to share a tent with. And I'll talk more about that on the next slide when we get to camp, because um, I know that'll be a point of interest for somebody. One of the other things we have, um, in addition to the working agreement, is we do have a contract. So there's a contract that all the young people sign, which is our rules. Non-negotiable, these are the rules. I say non-negotiable, if they really gave us a great case, I'm sure we'd consider them. But on the whole, they're the rules around there is no alcohol, which included on Supercamp, even though all the young people were over 18. Those things that we think are really important to creating a space where young people can not have those things that might have triggers or might make them feel at risk at other points in their lives. We make it clear to young people that that's difficult for them, then maybe they're not ready to come on camp yet, and that they can keep accessing our youth spaces and support them through that to hopefully come in the future. Um, we give a briefing to the campsite staff. 
So often we um, do activities when we're on camp, so we do some raft building or some climbing or some zip wiring. Uh, we are trained to run those activities, um, so we use kind of pretend to use the campsite staff, so like staff leaders who run those activities for us. Um, so all of the staff on that site get a briefing from us, which we wrote quite a few years ago, and we've edited over the years. And it simply explains that some of the young people in our group may identify as LGBTQ. We know that it's all of them and they're all trans, but what we did was in, in response to feedback from young people, I think four or five years ago, who said, actually, I don't want to be outed. We were like, yeah, that's a really good point. So we leave it as some as, and we can. Simple. Um, and I think sometimes they know that we might be lying, but it's fine. Um, and what it does is it gives them some really concrete advice and strategies to use around pronouns and not making those assumptions, uh, which means that we then know that in those spaces, AI people will still be um, not put in a situation where they have to explain or validate their identity. And I think that's one of the key things for us. We also run for our own staff really specific training around camp. So a lot of our staff who work on camp are our youth work team who work in our youth groups, but we run extra training about how to support on camp and what that's going to be like. Because what we know is that residentials anyway are a more intense experience when you're a youth worker and when you're a young person. Um, but that also camp itself and the way that we structure things can bring up a lot of emotions, can bring up a lot of stuff. So we want our staff to be prepared for that. Um, and every year we have new volunteers who have never done anything with GI before and we kind of induct them through this really intense process of camp. Uh, and often they stick around, which is important to add. So, you finally make it to the campsite. Sleeping arrangements. So, I mentioned about tents. We, hopefully, obviously, don't separate tents by gender. It doesn't work, right? The, the whole thing, this has been said before in the conversation about toilets today and probably in some of the other sessions as well, the whole idea of this binary split doesn't work. It's based on very heteronormative assumptions, it's based on the idea, somebody said in the toilet session earlier, I think, that being in a single gender space is safe. And I think we believe that. And we don't think that, that makes it more safe. So what we do is we split sleeping arrangements by age. So our camps, so although this year we had a bigger age group split, historically our camps have always gone right from age 11 to 25. So we split our sleeping arrangements, 11 to 16, no, 11 to 15, 16 and 17 year olds, and then 18 pluses. We're on a field, right? So what that means in essence is that the people aged 11 to 15 share some tents over here, the 16 and 17 year olds share some tents there, and the 18 pluses share some tents over that group field. And our staff tents are dotted between them, so we have a pretty good idea if somebody's getting out of their tent during the night and going for a wander. We also have a night worker on camp. Um, so we have somebody who literally arrives in the evening, we go, here are the things that happen during the day, night, see in the morning. We get to sleep, which is great, it means we get to sleep. And then in the morning, the night worker says, right, here's what happened during the night, here's who I need you to support, here's who you might need to look after today, here's who's going to be really tired because they stayed up to five in the morning. Um, and then the night worker goes home and gets to sleep during the day and comes back, which is great. Um, so it means that we have a pretty good idea of somebody's moving about between those age group points. So on that prep day, young people, after we've done some icebreakers and they've had some chats and they've got to know people a little bit, they sit down and they go, okay, who do I want to share a tent with? And do I want to be in a tent that's really open, where we all pile in and there's six of us and we're all in the same space? We don't have a lot of those tents. What we have more is tents where you have your own separate little sleeping pod. So you've got your little communal porch area and then you might have three sleeping pods, each of which can take one or two people. 
So young people sit down, you give them like a little drawing of some tents, you say, these are the tents you've got for your group, figure out how you're going to sleep in them. And they do, and on the whole it works, and we've always take spare tents, because inevitably there'll be a leak in a tent, or something will go wrong with the pole, or somebody will actually decide, oh, it turns out they sleep with a torch on that, and that doesn't head in, so I'd rather sleep somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, that's fine, we've got some spares, let's put those up. Um, and I think that's important to have that capacity to change as well, because otherwise we're saying, no, you have to put up with that situation. Um, or you have to go with somebody else, which then might make them not feel very great about that. Um, Gender-neutral toilets, we talked about toilets a lot today, I'm not going to go on about it, but basically we claim the toilets when we arrive at the campsite. Part of our briefing and our conversation with the campsite beforehand is that we need that for our group, and it's not acceptable to not have that. So the campsite which we used for years, they gave us a toilet block that was all ours. It was like, there's your toilet block, and we arrived on the first day and put up signs that just said, GI group only. They were out for the weekend and we ignored all the silly little signs on the door. Um, the campsites we used this year for Super Camp, we actually were able to have the whole site to ourselves, so it didn't matter. We put signs up and we did what we wanted. Um, and for the other group, we actually had gender neutral toilets as the nearest block to our site, which was pretty cool. Um, and they were accessible as well, I think. Um, which is brilliant. One of the things that we add to that, just when we do have to take over some toilets that may already exist, and we have to kind of make them better, uh, that does involve a shift of some sanitary bins. Um, on Supercamp, we actually had little piles of sanitary products in every cubicle, which was quite cute, just so that nobody was put in a situation um, where they had to go and find one. Um, fire circles I'm going to touch on really briefly. It's important that I mention it because they, we do them on camp every year. It's a place for people to go through some of their emotional stuff and talk about how they found the experience. Um, activities we've already talked about, and I've mentioned about the slide as well. Um, which leads us to after camp. So when we say goodbye at Coach Point, we don't go, right, that's it, bye, good luck, see you later. Because some of our young people don't come to GIU group. Um, for Super Camp, we had some young people who came down from the middle of Scotland and have never been to GIU before and never met trans people before. Like, hi, welcome to like 200 trans people. No way, everyone in some situations. Um, so again, we call everybody after camp as well. So, hi, it's about a month later. How, how has the return to the world been? How are you doing? How's that thing that we talked about in camp that was difficult? How have you negotiated that? How's that been? Um, in terms of super camp, again, didn't call more. But what we did was we sent an email out which included some signposting to some other support. Here are some agencies that can support you if you're struggling with these things after camp. If you're really struggling and you don't know what to do, get in touch with us. Here's the link to the GI Therapist Network directory. Use it, find out this therapist, use that support if you need it. Um, the other key thing, and that's a photo of mine from Supercamp, the other key thing we do is on camp, everyone writes uh, affirmations to one another. So it's just they take a little moment where they write a message. It might be a reminder of a key moment that happened that everyone shared, or it might be a specific message to that other person that is a kind of positive memory for that person to take back into their life. And what we know is that people keep those. We know that we keep ours as well. Um, but we know that some people keep those and read them throughout the year or that they put them up in their rooms and turn to them when they need that kind of positivity and that reminder that they were in a space where they were accepted. So what's the impact of all of that? I thought rather than me just telling you, I put up some quotes. Um, these are from just this year and last year. Um, it's not all quotes I had to pick out. Um, but I particularly like the idea of it giving her a space to breathe. I like that. Um, 
we're 100% valid, trans and proud. Valid was the key word from Supercamp this year. You couldn't go anywhere on Supercamp without being told you were valid. <laughs> <laughs> You're valid! I just want to go to the toilet! I'm valid! <laughs> um, I, like, you know, I like the idea that people leave camp and want to go into youth work and want to pursue that as a career based on their experiences there. Um, and I think the final one could probably be true for most of us. It's caused a profound change in me. I'm not sure what it is yet, but I know it's for the better. Um, and then just very quickly, um, a slide that just shows some top tips if you're not having a trans only space, but you're thinking about residentials and how you can be more trans Thank you. Hello. Um, I'm Toby, I use the pronouns. Um, um, I am introducing Summer, who um, is going to speak to us today a bit about um, the colours group that they run for trans people of colour. Uh, they've been working with GI for four years now um, as a youth worker and mentor. Currently studying a Masters in Psychotherapy. And they're a cat person, but they're allergic to cats, which sounds like a very sad thing. So. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm going to stand as well and try not to trip over these wires. <laughs> Transculturists just over everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, yeah, thank you for that introduction and thank you everyone for talking. It's, it's, I think it's a really amazing space. I'm going to say space a lot. Um, I apologise. Um, and I, I think oh, sorry, I've got to itch my face, so I have to not let go of anything. I'm aware that maybe I have covered more practical stuff in my, my talk, um, but I'm around until the end of the day, until the social, so come and chat to me afterwards. We use the Q&A space, um, also email me, tweet me. Um, my name's in the programme, so it's sabba.chowdhury at genderintelligence.org. So GI has always made space for young people to exist without judgement and questioning with acceptance and respect. And that means having spaces that exclude others to ensure that we are truly included. As a trans person of colour, I know how important it is to be able to have those conversations about race and gender, away from cisness and away from whiteness. And even here in London, that is hard to do. And when I have been able to have those conversations, those really well-needed conversations about my own race and my own gender, it's given me space to grow into myself and spread out. So often in the world, space is actually taken away from us, and trans people of colour deserve to take our space. So, um, as Toby said, I've been working with trans youth, um, trans youth of colour for many years now, um, and it's been very interesting creating safe spaces for us. Um, I've been thinking about, what does that mean for trans youth of colour? Does that mean no white people, no cis people? What else? What, what do trans youth of colour need to be safe and to take up that space? The spaces that we create exist beyond the words of a working agreement and even beyond the walls of a youth club. And this is important to consider because for many young people of colour, they can't access our youth groups. It's not that they can't come out to their parents or that their parents don't understand trans or that their parents blame religion, but that it's an ongoing conversation that's often exhausting, it's painful, and it challenges parents' own beliefs of religion. I've worked with young people of colour over months and months, just talking on the phone, stealing the 10 minutes they have alone between coming home from school and then their parents coming home from work. I've worked with young people of colour who I see like once a year, as they retreat back into safer identities and gender expressions, 
um, as they're traveling abroad with family or just want to get through their final year of school before they can turn 16 or 18 and move out. Transits of color are complex because our cultures, our faiths, and our families are complex. And I'm sure that you might have your assumptions and stereotypes about what their lives might look like. I don't want to focus on what you might see as the stereotypes, which are essentially the differences from the mainstream narratives that mean that youth aren't heard, things like religion or perceived traditional family values, which of course do bring their challenges, but I want to try and focus on the similarities which are actually what can dissolve those stereotypes and encourage mainstream narratives to widen for trans youth of colour. Some of these issues that trans youth of colour face are around what space exists around them now and how it does or does not keep them safe. That space is often governed by family who don't understand, schools who don't support and homes that can't nourish or nurture. As trans youth of colour have intersecting identities, the space to support them needs to be intersectional too. I've learned that the safe space is the email thread that we're tugging back and forth, sometimes unraveling, sometimes breaking up altogether. It's a lifeline. I've learned that the safe space is the steps to the theatre where Travis Alabans is performing, the pavement outside the tube station where we're meeting for Black Pride. It's the outside public space. It's visibility. And space is something often that we're fighting for, but here we are allowed to redefine what space is, and it becomes virtual. It becomes invisible. It becomes limitless. I've also learned that not all trans youth of colour want to come to a room with other trans youth of colour and face reality again from a reality that they're actually trying to get a break away from. Yes, we are hurting. And yes, the trauma lives in our bodies and through our skin. We face racism and Islamophobia and transphobia every day. But our space needs to be the opposite. Our space needs to be a model for what the everyday could, could and should look like a possibility of a world in which they can survive and thrive. Trans youth of colour want to come to a room with other trans youth of colour and have fun, surprisingly. I don't know why I had to learn that. Um, <laughs> you know, trans youth of colour want to laugh and joke around. They want to deconstruct the room and not just their gender or their race. Bring out of the room and build something new. So how do we do that? For me, it's about redefining space and doing normal things. Queering and transing them up a bit and adding a bit of colour, or as I like to call it, adding critical race theory and an intersectional feminist lens. <laughs> because these normal things aren't in our normality, and the definition of space doesn't include us. So we did a very normal young people thing, which makes me sound very old, and we went to the Orchard Nails this summer. I took four of our wonderful trans youth of colour away in August for a four day one-of-a-kind residential in the beautiful and serene Yorkshire Dales. So we joined 18 LGBTQ BME young people and seven workers from Sheffield, Manchester, Bradford and Birmingham. From whacking to caving, to gill scrambling and screen printing, from lambs to goats, to Jana Gobi and Anand. This residential was important for many reasons. The first is what I've mentioned already. We had so much fun. It was like laughing so hard we were crying fun. It was silly and it was actually quite liberating, as one new person said. The time we had was too was much too short, and it should be once a year. It's the only space I've had that makes me feel like I'm not suffocated. The second reason why this residential was important was really explicit in the conversations that we had over the week and in the feedback we got afterwards. 
In particular, this quote stood out to me. I'm really happy we have space we claim for ourselves, and we're all such a big happy family. Family. Community. Not alone. We redefined family, we expanded family, and we chose our family. It was in the little things, like one of our brand new workers called Marina, who became lovingly known as Grandma, single-handedly cooking delicious Malaysian Indian food for all of us every day with so much love and care. That's family. Lastly, was the word that was repeated many, many times in the feedback, and I want to read you this beautiful quote I pulled out by a young person. Please continue to create a safe space where we all heal each other's scars with love, understanding, and positivity. Safe. Safety, security, safe haven. This is why the residential is so important. Young people of colour felt safe. We can't take that for granted. I think for a few, it was the first time that they could let their guard down and take the time to learn about themselves. What did young people learn, you ask? <laughs> Let me share with you um, what they wrote. I think I think we'll speak for themselves. They learned that I'm decent at drawing. Yes, you are, I am a person. You're good at drawing. I've learned more about my sexuality and my gender identity. When given the space and resources and compassion, I can look after myself better and I can rest better. Yes. I'm amazing when my needs are met. How incredible, like, ah, and that's just like, yeah. I was gonna swear. <laughs> Don't be one here, though. I'm just sure when he's in there, like, yeah, of course you are. Another person, that learn that I can be valuable to others by being myself. And we are beautiful. So, just to kind of end on, safest spaces for trans youth of colour means fun, it means laughing, it means joy, it means happiness, it means visibility, being outside, taking up space in the world. And it means empowerment, and that's family and solidarity. Thank you. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Um, I think something I've been considering recently is that safe space for trans youth doesn't look the same between trans youth, and so an intersectional approach to that is so important. I think I think something that was a I'm going to speak a bit more about this tomorrow during the keynote, so... Um, <laughs> I think something that was... We had a reflection at the end of camp and um, said what we were taking away from it. And I think one of the things that stood out to me was like a knowledge of what I deserve. Um, it's not necessarily what I can expect when I'm in the wider world, but it was a, a knowledge of like how I deserve to be treated by other people. Um, there were so many small and yet huge things that I kind of picked up on in reflection. Like the fact that I had an entire week where I wasn't scared to walk into a bathroom was like huge because the toll that it, that it takes of living that anxiety every day and the toll it takes on your body, just the relief of being in a space where for a whole week I didn't have to worry about that. Um, and that I knew that people wouldn't be making assumptions about my body and therefore my gender. And um, I think I think being in that space and also it was kind of a space where you were allowed to not be trans, which sounds really counterintuitive, but because everyone in that space was trans, it, it wasn't the salient thing about you. You're not that trans person. You know, I could be Toby who likes to play guitar because that's 
something about me rather than being like totally that trans guy. You know, you kind of get boxed off into that. Um, and yeah, I guess kind of being in that space and um, for me as a, like, as a trans man, a kind of trans bit at the beginning of my gender identity didn't matter because in that space I was what it meant to be a man. It, it wasn't like I'm some kind of subset of manhood in that space, so it was the very definition of what that meant. Um, and that was a really wholly new experience for me. Um, so I think, I think what I kind of came away with was a sense of like, a real sense of my own worth and what I deserve. Um, and still a knowledge of reality and that reality doesn't necessarily reflect that. But um, I think it's hugely impacted actually how I've lived my life and some of the decisions I've made since I left camp. Um, just kind of having held on to that. You've been listening to the Transforming Spaces podcast. Our next conference will be running on the 15th and 16th of November 2019, so make sure to save the date and we'll let you know when tickets are up. I know I will. (laughs) Thanks for listening. And if you want to continue this conversation or you have any points to add, we'd be really interested to hear your views. Um, So do please tweet us at... At Gender Intel. (laughs) Ha 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 ha.